Hello and welcome to Energy Unplugged by Aurora. This podcast features various experts from Aurora having in-depth conversations with key industry leaders, policymakers and academics from all over the world. It explores the hottest topics across the energy market and gives a unique perspective on major energy issues. Welcome to Energy Unplugged. I'm Hugo Batten, Managing Director of Aurora in APAC and California. We're very much looking forward to today's discussion, which is going to be focused on Japan's energy markets. Today's guest is Professor Llewellyn Hughes of the Australian National University and a deep expert in Japan's energy markets. Llewellyn's had a long and distinguished academic career, spending time at MIT, Tokyo University and Harvard. He's also currently the director of the Japan Institute at ANU. He's also spent time in government as an advisor to Ichiro Ozawa, Liberal Party of Japan, and the private sector, for example, Enron in Japan, as well as providing strategic and regulatory advice to energy companies operating in the Japanese energy market. Welcome, Llewellyn. Thanks, Hugo. It's great to be with you. We're also joined today by Aurora's Rowan von Spreckelsen who leads Aurora's entry in new markets across APAC, and who'll be chatting to Llewellyn with me. Welcome, Rowan. Hey, Hugo. Thanks for having me. Let's dive right in then. Llewellyn, we've done a couple of podcasts on Japan's power markets, but there's obviously a lot going on. For our non-Japanese listeners, can you talk a little bit about the evolution of Japan's power market over the last five years or so? And, you know, very conscious, it's been quite a long road to deregulation and to try and create greater competition. Uh, thanks so much, and um, it's great to be with you uh, here today. I wanted to start a little bit further back in time, uh, if I mm. could. As you mentioned, you know, I got started really in Japan power markets in around 2000 when I was hired by Enron into their Tokyo office as part of a small team to try and push forward the liberalization of Japan's power, gas, and telecoms markets, if you might believe it. You might remember that Enron was hoping to trade 30-minute increments of broadband uh, back back in the day. And from that perspective, you know, often people say that Japan's quite slow to change. But, you know, to me, it's really clear that we've seen some very substantial reforms in Japan's power sector uh, over, over that longer time period. It's worth remembering the legacy that Japan started with. Actually, um, part of Japan's post-war anti-monopoly drive in 1950 Mm. during the occupation saw the management of the grid broken into nine regional utilities outside Okinawa. And we really had that system sitting in place that is vertically integrated regional monopolies within the service areas for more than four decades, Mm. right? So change really began in the 1990s, and that happened because Japanese policymakers accepted the view, I think, that power prices were too high relative to the OECD. So when I worked at Enron, we had a banner on the website saying that they were some hundreds of percent higher than the average OECD prices, for example, and that the best response to that was to relax the rules around access to generation and retail markets. You know, that was really part of the zeitgeist as well, I guess, at the time in the 1990s. And so what we've seen since then is a pretty long process of adapting to that new market model. The model is pretty common and familiar probably to your listeners. That is liberalizing the competitive segments of the power sector, that is generation and retail, separating out uh, transmission and distribution from those competitive segments. Now, there's obviously a huge amount of, uh, of other things that are going on, new approaches to transmission planning, which we might touch on later, the creation of additional markets to serve the electricity sector, you know, enabling new types of generation like offshore wind come in, uh, but that's the kind of the overall the overall picture. Yeah, it's a really interesting point. I mean, deregulation and privatization in some markets it went, I think, relatively smoothly and relatively quickly, but in other markets it did take more time and and kind of in fits and starts. You know, I think California is a great example where it almost got midway through some of their deregulation pushes, and then they had some energy crisis in the early 2000s, you know, in part driven by Enron, but, you know, and then kind of almost paused at a certain stage of the, the deregula- deregulation journey. So, yeah, it, it is an acute observation that they take different lengths of time and, and are not always completely linear. 
Yeah, look, I, I, I don't know. Although, I mean, the California crisis in 2001, I remember pretty well because I was at Enron at that time and it was mm. used, um, you know, pretty strongly to argue to slow down liberalization of power markets. I remember that, remember that pretty well. Um, I think with the, with the case of Japan, rather than being fits and starts, it's rather that it's been a, a, a fairly slow phased approach. So if you look mm. at generation, for example, you know, we began in, in the mid 90s with independent power producers gaining access to 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 the ability to um, sell or to build generation and sell, um, you know, on the retail side. Really beginning in, in, I think it was in 2000, we had extra high voltage users, so big factories and department stores and so on, being uh, opened up to retail competition. But that took until 2016 for residential customers to be able to um, choose uh, who they might buy power from. So, you know, that that was always conceived of as a, as a phased effort, but it was done over a fairly lengthy period of time. Um, and so, yeah, rather than kind of fits and starts because of crises, I think it, it's probably more that they've just kind of taken their time to make each step was locked in and bedded down before you moved on to the next one. Just out of interest, is that consistent with other Japanese, you know, major policy overhauls? Does it tend to be a little bit longer, more considered, more deliberate than perhaps, you know, I don't know, Australia or the UK or, or, or elsewhere? Gee, that is a great question. Uh, I think I, I sort of think as power being uh, of a kind, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, on its own, if you like. And and the reason for that is, is you know, it's it's just so core to the economy for a start. Yeah. Um, and you know, the Japanese government certainly for a long time has been really focused on issues like energy security, given the long supply chains, for mm. example, you've had to enable fuels to come into the economy more broadly. So I think that, you know, energy planning, if you like, you know, has been just a really central and, and almost set apart from other uh, deregulation processes. Although, look, certainly in the 80s, you know, there's a long history of, you know, trade disputes with the US around access to the construction market, telecoms markets, and so on and so forth. And there are certainly lots of warriors from back in the day in the 80s and the 90s who engaged in those trade negotiations who would probably say, you know, in response to your question that yes, Japan can take time to do things. It's not unreasonable in power markets because the risks are big if you get it wrong, of course. Yeah, absolutely. So Japan's energy market, like a lot of energy markets over the last 12 months, has been under stress, you know, very high gas prices, creating high electricity prices, supply chain and capex issues around renewables and storage and, and difficulty building transmission have created high wholesale prices, which have put retailers under stress. How are Japanese policymakers responding, I suppose, to the last 12 months? You know, in Europe, we saw fairly radical proposals around decoupling green and thermal wholesale markets, you know, I haven't seen anything like that being discussed in Japanese power, uh, policy circles, but you're, you're much closer to them than I have. What's been the general response of, of policymakers? Yeah, look, definitely, you know, Japan uh, has seen, uh, you know, large increase in, um, you know, in uh, fuel prices, imports, uh, you know, which is going into the power sector. We've had a weakening yen, which has meant that the import bill has been large and that's put pressure under their former utilities. I did see, for example, that TEPCO took some emergency funding from a consortium of banks to help them deal with the fact that, uh, you know, you, you've, you've got both a weakening yen and increasing gas prices and so on. So there's been a lot uh, of turbulence over the last 12 months, no doubt about it. I would say, though, that we haven't seen uh, any... Uh, real reconsideration of the fundamental direction that we're seeing power market regulation go. Um, I th having said that, I think that there's probably, uh, you know, one thing that's worth pointing to uh, is this new GX or green transformation policy, which the mm. government's trying to bed down. And that's a whole package of different policies. Um, but one of the things that they're looking to do through this GX or green transformation package is to reconsider the role of nuclear power within Japan's electricity mix once again. We've been in a holding pattern uh, around what position nuclear power would take within the Japanese power system, really since the Fukushima nuclear disaster. And 
as a result of this uh, turbulence that we've seen, I think um, that there's been a kind of move to reconsider and re-enable, really, the role of nuclear power. You know, I just think that the dynamics of the Japanese power market a little bit different to Europe. Yes, the volatility and so on, but the kind of things which have been shocked, you know, have shocked the system, uh, you know, a little bit different and obviously absolutely dominated by the Fukushima nuclear disaster mm. of 2011. So if you wanted to think about a big exogenous shock, which changed the direction of energy planning within Japan, it really happened, you know, 10 plus years earlier with the Fukushima nuclear disaster. You know, if you look at the basic energy strategy, which is the, you know, the Japanese cabinet has to review the midterm energy settings for Japan every three years. That's called the basic energy strategy or strategy or, or BES. In 2010, just before the nuclear disaster, you know, the government was looking at nuclear being about up to 50% of generated electricity by 2030. And that was a core part of meeting energy security goals and a core part of that uh, of the decarbonization gender at, at the time. A year later, that went to zero. And yeah. so we've really been, you know, I think in a, in a kind of holding pattern for quite a long time. Uh, over the last 12 months, that's changed. So under this new GX or green transformation suite of policies, you know, they're a little bit of an answer to the to the Inflation Reduction Act brought out by the Biden administration. Also, there's kind of industrial policies being brought out within Europe. Um, you know, there's a whole range of different packages, uh, parts of that package. But the longstanding legislated rule for nuclear powers to enable 40-year operating life in principle with a one-time extension of 20 years allowable if those units met uh, safety standards and the roadmap which the government uh, has brought out, this is going to require legislative change, uh, has, is uh, around allowing those nuclear units which have been shuttered to be extended beyond that period of time. Um, there's also a bunch of R&D in there about next generation nuclear units, right? And, and, and kind of statements around potentially uh, building those and deploying them within Japan. So I think you have seen a bit of a pushback of nuclear into consideration for long-term planning around generation in Japan. And that's been triggered a little bit by the kind of volatility that you're describing. But yeah, as I said, you know, the big exogenous shock, uh, you know, which changed the direction of planning uh, really was the Fukushima nuclear disaster and what that meant for decarbonization plans, reliability, all those kinds of questions. One final question before I hand over to Rowan. You know, I don't, there are very few Gen Taylor's vertically integrated utilities who have, you know, completely nailed the energy transition. And certainly some of Japan's big utilities have been under stress. Um, how are they, broadly speaking, how are they responding to these domestic policy, policy shifts? And I'm, you know, talking here about the likes of TEPCO, obviously. Yeah, look, it's a it's a great question. You know, wh when I got started uh, looking at the Japanese electricity sector, the utilities were utterly dominant, right? Like, if you wanted mm. to know, um, you know, the direction of policy, you needed to pay really close attention to the Federation of Electric Power Companies or FEPC, which was the industry association of the utilities themselves. Um, you know, they really rep represented the industry at large. That picture looks quite different today. Now, I will say that there continue to be market power issues within Japan, right? On a capacity yeah. basis within generation, you know, the former utilities have about 80% of, of generation on a capacity base. That's mostly more emissions intensive, uh, fixed point, large scale um, uh, uh, generation uh, assets. Uh, they also have got a big share of the retail market. And importantly, there's not a lot of competition across the former service areas. And this is something actually that the, that the, the government's been looking at quite, quite closely recently um, uh, as well. But they have been needing to adapt. So the first thing, obviously, to say, let's point back to Fukushima. There's an enormous nuclear plant uh, there which has to be decommissioned. There's a really very difficult uh, you know, problem around the, um, uh, the the fuel, which is sitting at the bottom of the containment vessel, enormously expensive and a decades-long process to try and manage that. A lot of the technology that's going to enable that to be managed you know, hasn't yet been invented. So this is kind of right. a, a core thing to, to keep in mind when you're thinking about how particularly TEPCO is responding to the mm. sorts of changes that we've seen. 
Um, so we've seen, uh, you know, with the market changes, we've seen transmission separated out from retail and generation, right? So we've seen a, diff a change in, in the structure of the utilities themselves, either moving to subsidiary uh, or, um, uh, or, or to holding company structures. I think one of the most interesting things that's happened in Japan actually is the creation of JERA, right? So JERA is a, a new entity. Um, it's a 50-50 venture between TEPCO and Chubu uh, Electric with all the thermal assets of those two uh, those two companies folded into it. But it feels like quite a different company to the former utilities. Uh, it's not tied to a particular service area like the old vertically integrated uh, companies, you know, might have, have that as part of, part of their corporate culture. You probably saw um, a couple of months ago that Jera bought Parkwind, which mm. is Belgium's, I think, their largest offshore wind uh, uh, um, uh, generator over there. Um, and you would have seen probably last week that they also just bought Green Power Investment, which I th was one of Japan's biggest, if not the biggest, renewable uh, uh, developer within Japan as well, which is a really huge move. I mean, GPI is you know, a great company and a very co capable company. So, you know, you, you've seen kind of Jera emerge into the marketplace as a really new entity. So I think that, you know, as I said at the beginning, looking back from you know that longer time scale, that looks like quite a different picture to the picture that that I I used to see when I was sitting at a desk as a you know as an associate or whatever it was back in in the Enron days. Is internationalization? There's some investment in renewables, but we do still have the market power issue around generation and and around retail, um, which 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 continues to be a feature of the Japanese market. Luen, I wanted to maybe come in here and and touch on something you mentioned earlier around kind of the development of some of the new markets as a response to some of these changes and, and, and dive into a bit more detail on that kind of market design question and the, what does the current landscape look like in Japan. Um, to date, a lot of the kind of renewable capacity has been deployed on the back of long-term feed-in tariffs, and that's now being has been replaced with feed-in premiums. There's also the introduction of the carbon price coming on. Uh, a low carbon 20-year subsidy for, 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 for CapEx. You mentioned earlier that Japan tends to take a longer considered view to, to implement changes, but it feels like things are starting to speed up on the market design side of things. What do you think, on, what do you think about some of the, these new structures? Is there a risk that we're starting to change too quickly, or is it actually best to do these reforms all in one go? You know, so to, to come to your question, you're right that there's an enormous amount going on. And as I mentioned, we've got this, this green transformation package of policies, which have also been put in place, which are talking about carbon pricing, uh, as well a whole bunch of industry policy initiatives, which are going to require a lot, a lot of deep analysis. Um, I think the particular challenge Japan faces uh, is that it's trying to do two things at once. One of them is to complete the process of introducing competitive principles into the electricity market, and at the same time, uh, you know, the, the government, along with other governments, has, has substantially increased the ambition of its decarbonisation targets. And that really importantly is not just mid-century, but also this 2030 uh, near-term target of a 46% uh, economy-wide emissions reduction compared to 2030. So intuitively, it makes sense, I guess, that uh, you would want to do the market design stuff before you think about the decarbonization part uh, part of things. Um, but I don't know that we've got a lot of evidence, you know, coming up from, from, from the research perspective about whether the pace of reform is going to affect the likelihood of success. For me, it's really about, you know, what are you trying to achieve? Um, what policies are you using to do it? And how are they importantly interacting with with one another. So, you know, the government is really focused on system reliability. As you mentioned, we've got uh, a capacity market. Um, we've got balancing markets, which are being put in place uh, as well. We've got this new kind of longer term subsidy, which the government uh, is, um, is putting in place to enable, uh, to try and ensure that there's uh, sufficient long-term generation being invested in. But aside from that system reliability issue, really, we've got near-term rapid decarbonisation, and then we've also got the, um, the the goal for economic efficiency. I think that there's risks to both of those things, uh, but I, I don't know it's because of the pace of reform. And this is really a, a personal view, but I, I think it has something to do with a difference in the underlying vision that's, that's driving some of the changes that we're seeing. There have been a lot of... Uh, 
uh, not a lot, but there have been quite a number, I guess, of, of um, uh, independent uh, scenarios which have been developed outside government looking at pathways to decarbonisation of, uh, of Japan recently. There was a big study that came out from Berkeley and NREL uh, led by Shiraishi Kenji recently, which got quite a bit of media pointing out that it's possible for Japan to move to a 90% uh, decarbonised power system by 2030 without coal and without any new LNG invested in. Um, the Renewable Energy Institute's, you know, an independent think tank in Japan, they've done a similar kind of analysis. And those kinds of analyses are a little bit of odds with what we're seeing coming out of government planning processes. If you take the example of hydrogen pneumonia, you know, that is is a fairly core part of the Japanese government's plans for reducing emissions from the power sector in the long run. And, you know, that's been criticised as risky and, and possibly costly and quite possibly inconsistent with long-run emission goals. So I don't know, um, you know, whether that difference is, is just because of the speed of reform. Rather, I, I, I do sort of feel that there's there's a bit of a difference in the philosophy or what the feasibility space looks like for decarbonisation in Japan, which is which is leading to some concern that you're going to be meet your decarbonisation goals, that you're going to be able to do it at lowest cost, that you're not relying on, a, on on some innovation which hasn't yet been achieved yet and is necessarily uncertain, right? And, you know, the outcome, of course, if you don't get that right, is you're going to end up with more emissions-intensive capacity in the system for longer, which is going to undermine mm-hmm. your, your long-term decarbonisation plan. So I think that's a risk, right? I mean, just to build on that a little bit, it's it's interesting how rare like fully integrated reform packages in energy markets are. I think this kind of suite of reforms, EMR in the UK was an example where it actually did come together, you know, simultaneously carbon prices, um, capacity market sharpening signals in the wholesale market. But it, and, and maybe the New South Wales roadmap for our Aussie listeners is another one where transmission, renewables, firming was all tackled together. But it does, it does feel like most jurisdictions struggle to do that. And it is more kind of gradual, incremental change responding to particular crises as, as they emerge. It'd be interesting, as you say, I'm not sure what the academic literature is on this, Llewellyn, but it'd be interesting to kind of compare, you know, centrally planned and driven integrated reform packages to more kind of incremental uh, r- reforms and which, which have more success in the long run, however you define success. Well, I think that's right. And I mean, the other thing to say, I guess, about this is, you know, there's a generally accepted view that if we set an appropriate uh, uh, carbon price, then that's going to achieve the main goals that we try and achieve through market design, right? We want something to be environmentally effective, that is to decarbonize in this, as we're talking about it today, you want it to be cost effective, you want to be able to deal with the distributional issues associated with the transition, right? And the carbon tax can be good uh, in that in that sense because you can take the revenues from it and redistribute those in order to manage any kind of energy justice-related concerns that you might have. The big issue, of course, is it hasn't proven itself proven uh, itself to be politically feasible in many jurisdictions to be able to introduce mm-hmm. uh, at at what what's recognised as the kind of social cost of carbon to us, right? And so what you end up with is is you know, uh, 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 policy packages, right, which really kind of try to knit together a whole variety of different um, approaches to uh, solving the solving the decarbonisation problem. And, you know, Japan is in a bit particularly difficult position here, right? It is a large electricity market, right? Um, it, uh, it's not connected to the Asian continent, right? So you don't have any kind of options with other countries to trade, to trade power, uh, it's a fairly small place. It's very mountainous, and it's got a constrained grid because of the legacy issues that we've seen that we saw before. So I, I do kind of sympathise with people who are trying to figure this particular problem out. I mm. think they're burning their midnight oil quite a bit. They've got market design issues to think about. They've got this really ambitious new decarbonisation agenda that they're trying to implement. That requires new generation types to come into the market. But also, you've got to be pretty careful about the market design, right? Otherwise, you could end up with problems with insufficient investment in the long term, for example, in generation. So it it is a difficult um, set of uh, uh, initiatives to implement in general. And I think that Japan does face some particular challenges given its geography, uh, you know, and the size of the market uh, as well. 
The other one I point to is this very steep shoreline as well. So even offshore wind is challenging in Japan and, and, you know, a significant chunk of it may have to be floating. So I think Japan's real physical geographic challenges certainly put, for example, Australia's decarbonization challenges into, into context. I think you, um, you both touched on several of the kind of key challenges in Japan there. I wanted to unpack those and, and get a bit more into the weeds on a few of those topics. I think primarily thing you, you touched on nuclear, Japan and hydrogen, offshore wind at the end there. I think transmissions, the other big one. So wanted to maybe dive into each of those in, in turn. Maybe let's start with transmission. Um, like a lot of markets, I think Japan is starting to see material grid curtailment in certain regions. It's, it's probably one of the number one, number two issues that that we model with developers. Do you have views on kind of how how best to accelerate transmission build out across Japan? Are there kind of governments around the world that are doing this well? Yeah, so it's it's a really um, great question. Actually, you know, in areas, there are a few areas where I think Japan has been doing a pretty good job. Uh, energy efficiency is generally recognized as one of those. It's got this kind of longstanding law, the Energy Efficiency Act, which has been using kind of standard setting around manufacturers across a whole range of different product categories to, to um, help improve energy efficiency across the con- economy generally. That's been pretty successful. And they're looking to squeeze a lot more out of that in the coming in the coming decades uh, as, as as well. You know they've they've done a pretty good job uh, of that. Um, I think that transmission is actually another fairly bright spot in terms of Japan's decarbonization planning. Although that may be underappreciated because often this is kind of discussions which are happening, you know, in the weeds amongst these sub subcommittees sitting within the ministry, <laughs> and the information doesn't always come out very clearly to to market market participants so you know a really and a key change here again it goes back to fukushima right so back um with fukushima in the wash up from that from that disaster there's kind of analysis of of what went wrong uh, in the power sector and one of the things that was identified was limited regional interconnections right which is just a legacy of the of the former utility structure so in 2015 we had this new organization created octo or the Organization for Cross-Regional Coordination of Transmission Operators, I think is what it's called, although I often have to look that up because OCTO is much, much easier to say. And one of its one of its roles is to formulate and develop cross-regional network development plans, right? Um, now, one of the things that it's done is develop a, a national grid plan. They actually looked at the Europeans quite a bit in terms of scenario planning around grid and particularly the NSOE process as they thought about how you should think about grid planning for uh, for Japan. I, I would really encourage listeners to take a look at that work if they want to understand how Japan's kind of thinking about grid build out, right? So we had a legacy system in which you know when you thought about uh, strengthening the the grid, it really got triggered by uh, request to connect by new generators, and that could really slow uh, the 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 uh, new, new generators, including renewable generators, um, or access to to the grid. Um, but what we've seen is that is that shift to a national grid planning process, where there's a cost benefit analysis associated with new investments. Scenarios have been developed. I think there were three of them from memory, with the central scenario seeing more substantial renewables penetration up to, I think, around 50%. And there's certainly been criticism that should be more. But then we've seen an analysis of the range of investments which would be identified as consistent across all the scenarios, depending on how generation, uh, you know, get uh, develops in, 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 the coming, in the coming decades, right? Um, and, and those uh, investments have been identified both within the former utility service areas in Kyushu and elsewhere, as well as between them and crucially between Hokkaido and Tohoku as well, as well as this high voltage yeah. DC cable that they're doing a feasibility study on to link uh, Hokkaido down to the, the, uh, the Tokyo area. So, you know, we've kind of moved from the system in which you had grid uh, enhancements being triggered by, uh, by requests for uh, access by new generators to a much more integrated national grid planning process in and in which we're seeing uh, the feasibility studies beginning to be done around actual new grid investments uh, between the regions in order to enable power to flow from places where you can have a lot of renewables built, particularly here I'm thinking about the north of Japan around Hokkaido and Tohoku 
uh, down into the major demand centers, you know, around Tokyo. So there's definitely, you know, been some criticism, I guess, of the of the size of the uh, investments which have been suggested there. So if you look at the 90% renewables deployment scenarios, for example, you know, they suggest you would need more grid investment up in the, up in the north um, than is being planned under the national grid planning process. But it is really heartening and I think an excellent change to see a shift to national grid planning um, and, and, you know, to real actual cases being developed uh, around the investment in those. Now, you know, let's go back to the 46% economy-wide emissions reduction target again. Would it have been better if we had the national grid planning process, you know, uh, kind of settled a few years ago? Um, in retrospect, uh, that's probably the case, right? Uh, because, you know, we've got these near-term goals, um, uh, you know, 2030 goals, and we've, there's a lot to get done. But it's a kind of direction of change. I do think that the the changes that we've seen, seen in transmission have come uh, you know, a pretty uh, f- taken a pretty big step in a fairly short period of time, and I-, I would really point to that as one of the bright lights of the changes that we've seen in Japan. Yeah, it's. I mean, we spent a lot of time looking at that Octo Master Plan that you were, yeah. you were you were talking about, and I think it is something that we've seen grid operators globally start to really pick up the pace on and be very proactive with long term planning. Sure. It's 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 the major thing that can unlock the grid. It's oh, it's often one major area that government can really have a have a major role in in kind of dedicating spend to the grids, making sure that they're coordinating with the grid operators and the, and the utilities to facilitate that and, and bring on uh, renewables to to meet their targets. Um, yeah, that's that's one of the interesting things about it too is that you know here I'm sitting in Australia and you know in Australia there's you know this is a conversation that we're having with the renewable energy zones um, and you know how we're going to build transmission grids you know between Australia between Victoria and South Australia and other jurisdictions uh, f- for example and one of the issues that we often you know that we, we're concerned about it is, is kind of a, a, a societal acceptance of the building of these large new, new transmission grids right this is a how to pay for it question but. But I think a really fundamental question is, is you know, around, uh, you know, areas where there's a lot of agriculture and getting access to that to, to, to build new transmission lines, for example. One of the things I don't hear a lot about in Japan, um, you know, is that kind of societal acceptance associated with new transmission build type question. I don't know if that's because it's not a question or just because we don't read a lot about it. But it, 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 I think it's an issue that would be, uh, you know, interesting to look into and, and a little bit a little bit more detail. It may just be that, you know, given locational choices, that that's less of a concern around population centers, right? We've got mm. a highly urbanized society in Japan, right? So um, so maybe that's what's what's going on. I'm I'm not quite sure, but but it's not something that you see discussed, I guess, in the Japanese market to the same degree that you might see elsewhere. I'm thinking also of, of Germany where that's been a big issue. Yeah. And some degree, again, my understanding of depopulation in some of the rural areas as as well as Japan's population declines over time. So maybe that's another driver there, but agree. Super interesting. Look, it, topic. It, it, it could be, um, you know, but I, yeah, I, I mean, it comes down to, I guess now when we're looking at the actual, you know, we've got the, the, the national grid plan, we can see uh, what the early uh, business cases are for the, you know, for these new investments. Now we're getting down to detailed planning around those. The locational choices are going to be made. And I guess if you're going to start to see some kind of pushback, that's the point mm. where you're like, likely to see that happen. It's probably worth touching on the the, the nuclear picture in the context of, of challenges to decarbonization as well. And yeah. it, it's it's such a major factor long term. What's your what's your take on the kind of restart sequence of Japan's nuclear fleet? The the official target is 30 to 33 gigawatts by 2030. Do you think they'll achieve that, or and, and generally, how how are you seeing the, the population and general public kind of responding to that? The kind of safety versus decarbonisation um, dilemma. So I thought you might ask about nuclear, and I sort of feel like um, if, if I knew whether they were going to reach the the, the capacity to, or at least the the energy target by twenty thirty, um, I could have. You know, made some investments and probably be retired about the answer to that question. Uh, but uh, you know, the the I think the fundamental reason for that is because what's constraining nuclear restarts in Japan, you know, has become a, a quite difficult process 
um, which is really centered around a new independent regulatory agency, right? So historically, oh. Japan has not had a lot of independent regulatory agencies. I th think I'm right in saying the first one of these really was the Financial Supervisory Agency, which was created in 2001. Um, but prior to that, you often had the regulation, the policymaking going on within the same entities within government, right? So, you know, the, the independent regulatory agency model is something that really, uh, I think, it, it kicked off really, yeah, beginning with the, with the, with the FSA. So now we've got um, the Nuclear Regulatory uh, Agency, um, which was created in the wake of the, the, the nuclear disaster, hived off um, from, from the central ministry. And, you know, it's put in place some pretty stringent safety, uh, safety regulations associated with restarts. And, you know, it's been pretty independent in making those decisions. Um, you know, and so they've been looking, for example, at historical data uh, around the existence of fault lines close to, and, you know, really going along many hundreds, if not thousands of years back in time to take a look at that. Um, they've also been looking at, you know, other kinds of um, safety uh, issues, you know, uh, the kinds of uh, procedures which have been put in place to manage the threat of potential terrorist incidents, for example. And that is a very, very time-consuming and also uncertain process, right? So TEPCO for a long time has been really uh, wanting to restart uh, Unit 6 and 7 of the Kashiwazaki Kariwa nuclear plant out there in Niigata um, while shutting down Units 1 to 5, which are older uh, older units. Um, but they've been unable, unable to do so. And part of the reason for that is because of uh, the, the the just the independent regulatory process which has been put in place in the wake of Fukushima. The other part of it is around um, local local support. So... You know, Hugo, you, I think, uh, mentioned um, earlier that, um, you know, how Japanese public is responding to the, 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 the nuclear and thinking about the nuclear, thinking about the nuclear issue. So I would say really from about the kind of mid, uh, like maybe, you know, I took a look at the 2014, if you look at the 2014 general election, for example, right, that to me, nuclear was really quite inoculated as a political, political issue at the national level. And what I mean by that is the government had kind of settled on a position in which it would say we're going to need to keep nuclear to a certain um, to a certain uh, degree, um, but uh, but we're not going to build new nuclear. And actually what it suggested is, is that nuclear would would attenuate within the overall power mix over time, right? But we need to keep it for reliability reasons as well as um, uh, as well as uh, for, for decarbonization. The general population elections, you know, if you look at opinion polls to say, you know, we, you know, nuclear is not particularly popular, but you also haven't seen the government, which has taken the position of keeping it to some degree in the energy mix being punished at the ballot box, right? So this is quite different from, let's say, Germany, where you've got these kind of, you know, parties sitting within the, within the parliament at the national level who have got very explicit positions and they're winning political support in order, you know, to, to get nuclear out of, out of the energy mix, for example. That's really not the situation you, you have in Japan. You haven't got a, the equivalent of the Greens Party in Japan, which is, you know, which is in coalition and kind of pushing those, those kinds of outcomes. So I'd say nationally, it's been a pretty benign environment in that particular sense. But the other big constraint and uncertainty, I guess, more, more importantly, has been around local politics, right? So, um, you know, although it's not legislated, uh, you know, it's it's uh, intuitively obvious, I guess, that the, you know, that the, the, the national government doesn't want to push or support restarts in the face of strong opposition uh, locally, and you've seen that play out in local politics, right? So in Niigata, for a long time, there was a governor who, uh, you know, was was less than positive, might be one way of putting it. Uh, towards restarting the Kashiwazaki Kariwa plant, we've had a change in governor, but you know he's he's um, you know he's stepping very carefully in terms of rethinking through those issues. So, you know, when I say uncertainty, I think there it, there's kind of true uncertainty here, right? You you really can't assign a probability <laughs> to when uh, the 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 um, particularly the local conditions are likely to shift. And then you also have a fairly, you know, lengthy period around potentially meeting the, uh, you know, the new uh, safety standards which are required in order to restart nuclear power plants. So it does become really, really uh, uncertain. You know, the, the question is, um, you know, what what happens if 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 those plants don't restart? What's the likely outcome going to be 
for Japan's decarb goals, as we spoke about um, a little bit a little bit earlier. You know, and that's where I guess you know energy system modeling comes into play, right? You can look at different scenario analyses for these and understand what's likely to pick up the slack. I mean, if I was to wet my finger and put it in the air. You know, I would say it's a mix of gas and some coal and probably some solar, but it's not going to be particularly good in terms of these very ambitious, um, you know, 2030 emissions reduction targets that we that we see. But the, probably the best way to think about that is indeed in terms of, you know, uh, some scenario analysis. Yeah, I think the government is doing a reasonably good job of looking at the other options i think it knows that the nuclear restart is is an uncertainty so i think in the context of thinking about ccs on its gas and coal plants looking at hydrogen and ammonia and also the deployment of the offshore wind uh, industry as well so that you're not entirely dependent on one technology type through that period i might i mean it'd be worth touching briefly on the the hydrogen and ammonia side of things yeah japan has positioned it as itself as a central um, kind of import region for uh, Japan, whether it's from Australia or the Middle East or, or, or the US or, or South America. Yeah. What, what's, what's the right strategy here? Kind of let exporters invest, pick winners, or instead develop deep relationships with, with a couple of countries and, and kind of co-develop infrastructure. So, yeah, I think that hydrogen and ammonia are, it's really important to to talk about when you're thinking about where Japan is at today. You know, if if I look at this this debate around hydrogen, you know, over the last five years, let's say, um, you know, Japan was, I think, yeah, the the first uh, government to to release a national hydrogen strategy, right back in 2017, I want to say it was. Um, and, you know, IRENA now has kind of catalogued all of the national hydrogen strategies that have been released. There are quite a number of them now. I know that the Australian national hydrogen strategy, for example, really came off the back of the, of the Japanese one because, you know, the Australian government saw there was a potential export and industry saw there's a potential export opportunity there. Um, in the kind of end-use cases around Japan's national hydrogen strategy as well, and we've alluded to this before, um, you know, there's the, the kind of suggestion of the use of hydrogen and ammonia within the power sector, which is not broadly being considered in other markets, right? So, you know, we're thinking about hard to um, uh, abate sectors, steel in particular, uh, as an end, a core end use case for hydrogen, but not in these other areas in which direct electrification is likely to be uh, more cost competitive and easier to do and rely less on uncertain innovation, right? So, um, the other area, I guess, is fuel cell vehicles, which is still, you know, kind of big push uh, within Japan, which, you know, many people say is 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 not likely the the, the direction that, that market is is going. So, you know, Japan does have bullish plans for hydrogen and ammonia, including in the power sector, right? Um, now, how they got gone about doing this? I think that that actually, you know, as you mentioned, both things are going on. That is. You know, in, in, in 2022, I think it was February, JERA uh, released a request for proposals, right? And they asked for bids from an, a number of different um, uh, companies to supply um, uh, 500,000 tonnes a year, I think, of ammonia um, on a long-term contract, right? While giving them the option to actually take uh, a position in the in the upstream project itself. Now, uh, my understanding is that you know tied to uh, its uh, its plan to switch to twenty uh, percent of the fuel load uh, for one particular unit on a particular plant now um, switch it to ammonia uh, for for coke combusting with with coal uh, beginning in in, in the late twenty twenty. So they've kind of gone with this idea of a request for proposals, right? Um, let's let exporters invest and then pick the cheapest and take an option to be able to invest upstream if we like the look of the project which is being developed. You know, there's the question, of course, on the on the exporter side about how much certainty that, you know, whether that gives you sufficient certainty to make those investments, right? Um, but we have also seen, as the Australian government's done as well, uh, much more of this kind of co-development of infrastructure uh, type plan as well. So in the National Hydrogen Strategy, up to 2025 is kind of designated this period for testing different technologies for transport in particular. So there's likely to be domestic manufactured hydrogen, but given the the quantum of hydrogen slash ammonia that Japan wants to use, 
um, they're talking about importing a lot. And uh, and so, you know, they're, they're, you know I mean, Australia in, in Victoria, we've got this project. Uh, there are other projects around which are looking at different uh, different energy carriers for hydrogen. So you're seeing that as well. And in that, you've seen you've seen Japanese companies like J-Power, for example, investing upstream internationally in those assets, right? So I think both those things are going on. The big question, of course, is where hydrogen ammonia end up in the final picture of J- Japan's decarbonization trajectory. There are these market segments in which direct electrification is kind of understood as possibly being the cheaper and more feasible option. And so it gets back to the point I was making before about this kind of philosophical difference, if you like, about what what the range of feasibility looks like for Japan in terms of deep decarbonization. Yeah. And I think, I mean, the the other one in the infrastructure, in the infrastructure kind of investment uh, outlook is also the, the the question on the offshore wind. A similar similar structure as hydrogen, you've got to do a lot of oh. investment uh, ahead of time yeah. if that's something that they want to do. When we'd probably be remiss if we didn't talk about offshore wind briefly. Um, yes. But I, I'll maybe squeeze that in as the last last question before we before we wrap up. What what's your take on the offshore wind auctions to date? Do you think we will hit the target, the ten gigawatts by by twenty thirty, or do you think too ambitious? Look, so the first thing to note about the, the t- 10 gigawatt target by 2030 is a target for projects under development, right, rather than yeah. actually supplying electricity yeah. to the market. And um, so, you know, if you look at what the government is actually thinking about, if uh, they're as ambitious as possible, it's a much smaller uh, number of gigawatts, I think 5.7 gigawatts or something like this, with additional policy put in place that would be operating in the market. So it's not going to play a significant role in the 23 uh, electricity mix, for example, right, as part of the more ambitious decarbonization targets. Uh, but look, I'm 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 hopeful and ambitious for offshore wind in Japan. I spend quite a bit of time looking at the offshore wind sector. One of the issues that they've they've had is they've built a, a process for um, you know allocating development zones where you where you hold auctions in these rounds that you're you're describing has been a pretty bottom-up process to date right and what that's has meant is a lot of pre-negotiation with fishing communities particularly and fishing communities look pretty different in different parts of Japan how they're organized and so on so I think that we mentioned before uh, about the geographic or geophysical constraints of decarbonization in Japan steep continental shelf was one of the things that was mentioned um, you know, the legis- framework legislation was put in place in, in Japan was up to Japan's, uh, uh, um, you know, about 12 nautical miles, I think it is from shore. But they've recently started talking about enabling development uh, in Japan's exclusive economic zone, which would move much further offshore. And that obviously would enable floating offshore to a much greater degree than we've seen. The other thing I would say about that is it's my understanding that the the, the structure of licenses for fishing is held quite differently in far shore rather than near shore, right? So the kind of coordination issues with local communities would become less complex as you move further away. And so that might help, even though it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a fully mature technology as we stand today, that, uh, you know, the expectation is that, that it will be. And we've, you know, we've done some work in that area that would suggest that people's expectations certainly are that it's going to be cost competitive long run. And I think that those kind of co- local coordination issues would be would be more easily resolved as you move further offshore. So, look, it's a long-term positive, but it's also a long game. Um, I'm I'm a huge fan, and uh, and I think that it's going to be a really important part of Japan's long-term decarbonisation um, scenario. And they're also in the midst of overhauling the kind of assessment criteria because one party won the first round of auctions in their entirety. So, and that's kind of an inevitable part of the process, right? That you tweak the rules as you go through these auctions and you learn about the bidders and the cost structure and, and all those kind of things as well. So I think it will be interesting to see how that plays uh, out. It's it, Absolutely, yes. Well, and that's been absolutely terrific. Maybe one final question, which we ask all our guests. Um, who do you read or listen to? And, and maybe let's keep it to Japan in the energy space that you think is always good, thought-provoking and, and relevant to your work? 
Yeah, great question. I, I've heard your previous podcast where you've you've um, <laughs> you know you, you asked us a folks. So one of the things, of course, is the, is is language, right? So yeah, you know, I mean, accessing um, you know Japanese language makes a big difference to the types of information sources that you you're you're able to obtain. There are a number of like you know really terrific people. So I mentioned earlier the study done between Berkeley and NREL, mm. uh, led by Shiraishi Kenji, um, looking at decarbonization scenarios for the power sector in Japan. Um, I, you know, it's available in both English and Japanese, and I would, I, I, I recommend that folk download that and take a look at it. It's been getting quite a bit of press, and it's it it provides us a, a different kind of proposed picture of what renewables could do within the decarbonization space in Japan relative to, let's say, the central scenario which the government is using within its planning. Right. Um, someone uh, who who I follow a lot is a guy uh, called Yasuda Yo, and I'm I'm saying these in the Japanese way with a family name first. Uh, who's down at Kyoto University? Uh, you know he's he's terrific and I think really worth reading. Um, the Institute for Energy Economics Japan produces a lot of work. Some of their uh, modeling work, you know, is used in Japan's decarbonization planning within government. So I think they're a very very important entity. Uh, the the uh, Renewable Energy Institute or REI, mm. uh, Obayashi Mika, for example, is in there. That's an independent. Uh, uh, research institute, you know, that there have been historically not enough of those. And so they've been playing, I think, an increasingly important uh, role within Japan. Um, there are a, a couple of others maybe I would mention. Uh, firstly, uh, on nuclear issues, uh, Suzuki Tatsujiro. So uh, uh, Suzuki uh, Sang is now at Nagasaki University, but he was formerly the vice chair, I think it is, of the Japan Atomic Energy Commission. And really, I think one of Japan's wisest long-time, uh, long-term uh, kind of analysts of of nuclear power uh, within uh, within uh, Japan. Um, and lastly, I would mention the work done out of the University of Tokyo by Sugiyama Masahiro, who uh, is an MIT-trained guy, but he uh, works with integrated assessment models and is particularly doing a lot of work in inter, uh, inter in, in model intercomparison. So they're kind of looking at 2050 decarbonization scenarios across the economy to look mm. at what is robust to different um, model specifications and so on, but really smart work and I think worth paying attention to as well. That's an awesome and, and very thoughtful list. I've certainly been taking detailed notes there. And as you say, that NREL uh, Berkeley paper is excellent and we've certainly looked into it in detail. Llewellyn, thanks enormously for your time. We've covered a huge amount there and we're incredibly grateful. Um, all the best and thank you again. Thanks you both. That was Professor Llewellyn Hughes from the Australian National University talking to Hugo Batten, Aurora's Managing Director for APAC in California, and Rowan von Spreckelsen, who heads Aurora's entry in new markets across APAC. Do keep an eye on our podcast feed for more in-depth conversations with senior members of the energy industry. The best way to do this is to subscribe on whatever platform you use. Thanks for listening and goodbye.